Fading Memories is sponsored by I'm Up. I'm Up is an app that gives you independence, security, and peace of mind. Find it in your favorite app store and use invite code 006 when you sign up. Welcome to Fading Memories, a supportive podcast for those of us caring for a loved one with memory loss. Before we get into today's helpful episode, I have a little favor to ask you. Can you make sure to go on Apple Podcasts and rate and review Fighting Memories? This is the best way for new people to find the show, and I can't be a supportive podcast if people don't know I exist. And also, pop over to the website, FeigningMemoriesPodcast.com, and sign up for the newsletter. Now that I'm into year two, I've got some exciting things coming out that I would like to share with you, and I don't always have to be yakking in your ear to do that. So if you do those two things, I'd really love it. Now, on to today's show. So good afternoon. With me today is Grace Liu. She is with the Alzheimer's Association, Northern California, Northern Nevada chapter, that would be the chapter that represents my area. So thanks for being with me, Grace. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And then tell me about yourself and how you became part of the association. It's, that's actually a really interesting story. So I had an entirely different career before I joined the Alzheimer's Association. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for 10 years. And it was a very fun and fulfilling job. But dementia entered my life. Um, actually, I've been a caregiver twice in my life. First, in the 1990s, I was a caregiver for my grandmother. And she, she uh, my mom and my mom's four sisters were all her caregivers. And my grandmother would live with each sister for a little while um, like a month or so, and then she would move on to the next sister, which, as we know, is not the most ideal situation. <laughs> and we no. <laughs> that's, but, you know, they were doing their best. They didn't know. Right? So when my grandmother lived with my mom, I was, in essence, a secondary caregiver. And that really inspired me to learn more about the disease. So I went to work for an adult day center in Berkeley to learn more about disease and then I you know it had always been my dream to work in Hollywood and so I made that leap and it worked and but I was having a fairly successful career in Hollywood and then in 2004 my sweetie uh, my boyfriend was diagnosed with Lewy body dementia and as I'm as is with many caregivers I slowly cut back my work hours and soon became his full-time caregiver. And his journey lasted five years. And after that, it was strangely inspiring. I decided to go back to school for my MSW and I landed my dream job here at the Alzheimer's Association soon after that. Awesome. That is definitely a different path. Yes, it is. And we might have to get together again because I've had a couple people reach out to me with questions about their loved ones who have Lewy body. And obviously my experience with that is pretty nil. So, well, I'll have to keep you in mind for okay, that I'd one. i happy to talk about it. So we had decided that we were going to talk today about 
caregiver strategies and self-care. So that was your suggestion. So I'm going to let you take, take that lead. Well, I, in my role at the Alzheimer's Association, I run several caregiver support groups. And a common thread that I see among caregivers is this feeling, well, there's many feelings involved, but uh, one is that they're not doing enough. Or if only I do this, then things will be better. Or And there's a lot of, the second thing is that there is a lot of guilt involved. Definitely. Um, that besides it, I'm not doing enough, it's, um, this is where you'll have to edit because I, I'm having a senior moment. Oh, that's okay. I get those okay. too. Uh, so <laughs> what was I going to say? Uh, we are talking about feelings, not doing uh, enough, oh, guilt. Yeah, yeah. So, and the, the second common thread that I hear is that, you know, there's really no roadmap. That's for sure. And other dimensions, and everyone's just kind of feeling their way through. And so there's a lot of uncertainty and anxiety that caregivers express. Like, I'm not sure what to do. And, and no, there's, there's no master guidebook that applies to everyone. So, and that in turn creates a lot of stress and anxiety, and it's very difficult to cope with that. Um, and then thirdly, caregivers often have to walk a tightrope, whether it's the sandwich generation, caring for a parent while having young kids of your own, or whether it's someone in um, perhaps maybe the earlier stages of the disease where one minute your loved one may want support and help, and then the, and then the next moment they're saying, well, stop treating me like a child. I know what I'm doing. So there's always that tension, that stress that comes with caregiving. Um, you know, safety issues, financial issues, legal. And, you know, what am I doing? How do I manage in the future? Where can I get help? There's, so caregivers are overloaded, overwhelmed. And um, so that's, that's the common thread I see. And whether, and hopefully I can offer some suggestions or strategies today. That would be awesome. I think one of the things that I hear and I read, I don't hear it in my support group out here, thankfully, probably because our facilitator has fixed people on this thinking, but the caregivers, the kids taking care of their parents, which I know I'm not a kid, but I'm still working on taking care of my mom. And they, they relate it to t raising a ch child. You're like, well, my mom raised me. She did this. I'm like, but it's not even the same. You know, there's legal things. They're an adult. I mean, it's just, it's so not the same. And it makes me nuts when people say that. And I try really hard not to, correct them because obviously that's not very kind and I don't want to add to their stress, but I, I always feel like that mental 
frame of mind isn't helpful. Maybe it is for them. If I thought of it that way, I'd, I'd probably not be very good at what I'm doing. You mean meaning um, saying that treating your parent as a child? Well, they, they relate it. It's like taking care of my mom is like raising my oh, daughter. Right. No, no. And I don't agree with that at no. all. Raising my daughter was actually fairly easy. <laughs> um, but taking care of my mom is not. And I don't have her full time. She's in a memory residence. I can't imagine feeling that way and having her in my house. I would absolutely agree. I think, well, it's, it's almost the opposite because when you're raising a child, that child is learning and developing and getting better at doing things and, and becoming more independent. Whereas the reverse is true when you're caring for a parent with dementia. They're, in a sense, unlearning, and so they're requiring more help and more of your time and energy. Yeah, and it's seems to last longer. I've been on this journey probably 20 years with my mom and she's 76. Yeah. And the, the neurologist said, unless she gets, unless something else happens, she could probably easily live another decade. I was like, Oh, please. No, (laughs) which probably sounds really terrible to some people, but there are, when I look back, I cannot remember not dealing with her memory issues. It's been that long ago. So, you know, it's, I, I try to look back and think, well, when, when did I not know she had this problem? And it's, it's impossible to remember. That's how long it's been. So I don't, I don't look at another 10 years. I mean, she's already really bad, at least with me. That's the interesting thing I've also found with my mom is with me, I get rote language. I get snarky comments a lot more than I did a year ago which is really really irritating and with other people she's much more conversational much more friendly and it's like okay this brings up childhood hurts and it really irritates me right right there's a lot of triggering that happens right especially if you're caring for a parent all those (laughs) childhood issues and triggers and and your parents still remember those. That's what I always think with her. It's like there's I've my entire like teenage and adult life, I've always felt like no matter what I do, it's never enough. Mm-hmm. That was with her, that's with my dad. Sometimes even today it's like, hey, maybe not today is a good day, but there's a lot of times when I feel like I feel like that with my husband. It's like I need I need to learn how to not feel that way. But man, mom can push that button without saying very much. It just, it's amazing. (laughs) So you definitely don't have that issue if you're raising a child. They can push your buttons, but not in the same way. Right, right. So what type, you said you had, so we were talking like a little backtrack half a step here. You said you could offer some tips and stuff for not feeling guilty and maybe like not feeling like you're not doing enough. Cause I have to battle that with myself. When we talked, I guess it was last week. I basically said, I saw mom three times in one week. And so I took my normal Monday visit off because I'm like, I'm, 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 I need to get caught up on work. So, and it was hard cause I felt guilty. And I'm like, the staff always knows I show up Mondays between two and you know, like one forty-five and three at the very, very latest and I always think, you know, are they waiting for me to like bring up a problem or an issue? And it's like, they can call me. 
That's right. That's right. So I think it's very difficult for caregivers to set boundaries. And even like you're saying, your mom is in a safe place there. She's receiving good care and you're feeling like you're not doing enough. Right. Um, I think caregiving can be sort of a, a black hole. Even even when your loved one's not living with you, um, it, I definitely feel like I've been sucked into a black hole. It, it, and you know, for those who are still caring for their loved one at home, it can be even worse because you feel like, oh my gosh, I should be going out for a walk with him, or I should be taking her out with me, or engaging her in some activity, so she's not just not sitting in front of the TV. And so you're trying to live your life, struggling to live your life, and helping your loved one live theirs. And there's just not enough hours in the day. I mean, there's a reason that book is called The 36-Hour Day, right? Everyone's, I'm assuming most caregivers have heard of The 36-Hour Day. I have it. <laughs> it's, it's a very comprehensive book that existed. I don't know how many editions it's been, but it's pretty much like the, you know, the Bible, if you will, of caregiving. Anyway, so one of the reasons I think that um, caregiving seems like a black hole is that when there's a, when the disease is incurable and there are no effective treatments, um, you know, with, if, if, if it was a disease oh, that, you know, had a treatment or a cure, we, you would say that your goal of caregiving is to have the person get better, right? So you would do things that help the person progress towards health. But in this case, you know, there, the person isn't going to get better. So what, and so in a sense, our caregiving goals are really vague. And so I'm going to borrow a page from the Savvy Caregiver class that I teach, which, uh, Jen, you'll <laughs> find out more about this uh, next week. And it's, and one of the things that this Savvy Caregiver class that the Alzheimer's Association offers is it sets what we call reasonable goals for caregivers. And so if I'm going to just pull up my notes here. So, uh, you know, how, how do we know as a caregiver at the end of the day that we have done a good job? Because every job, you know, um, my job, your job, uh, whether it's an accountant or, you know, um, secretary, there's there's a job description and there's goals that you have to meet. And caregiving doesn't really have that. In fact, we do a lot of different jobs. Uh, you know, we're asked to be a social worker, a recreation leader, a chauffeur, a, a nurse, all these things that people actually receive training for. Yeah, like CPA. Come into this sort of as an unexpected career, if you will. And so, and all those other jobs have goals that you're supposed to meet, right? And you're evaluated against those goals. So I want to propose some goals of caregiving. And there are five of them. 
So one is safety and comfort. So at the end of the day, if your loved one didn't burn the house down <laughs> and they're in a comfortable environment, you've done your job. Number two, meeting your loved one's daily care needs, meaning did they have at least one good meal? Are they relatively clean? You know, are they dressed? You know, all those basic human needs, food, water, companionship. If you were able to meet their daily care needs, you've done your job. And now the next three, a little more, you know, touchy-feely, if you will. The uh, third one is something we call contented involvement. And contented involvement is that sense that we all get when we're doing something we really like, that we're engaged in, and we're in the moment. And so... You know, a lot of caregivers say, well, my loved one isn't happy. And they feel that their loved one should be happy all the time. And that's a hard bar. Even we can't reach this bar. We're, you and I, we're not happy all the time. Right. And it's true. And so we say that if your loved one has moments, of joy or moments where they're contentedly involved in something where they're not, you know, um, agitated there, you know, it could be something as simple as petting, you know, petting a loved um, animal. It could be helping peel the vegetables, empty the dishwasher, whatever it is, something, something with purpose that makes that engages them. Which brings me to the fourth one, purpose, having a sense of fulfillment. We don't lose that need for purpose, regardless of whether we have dementia or not, and regardless of what stage of dementia we're at. And so even if a caregiver makes up a task, a favorite one is like, you know, hey, mom, can you help me fold these, fold these hand towels? And of course, it's a, those towels don't actually need to be folded. It's a made up task. But if, mm-hmm. you know, mom feels like she's helping, then she will feel fulfilled. And I actually think that this is a good strategy for a lot of caregivers is to, you know, even if you don't necessarily need help to make up tasks that your loved one can do successfully and be engaged in um, so that they continue to feel the sense of fulfillment. It may be playing with the grandkids. Uh, It could be helping feed the dog, something like that. Well, that's one thing I've been researching a little bit. And because my mom is in a care residence, obviously everything's done for them. And I was, I'm mentally thinking through, ideas to give her purpose while she's there she's always she's a mom she's a grandma and she's always trying to take care of people Mm -hmm. 
the residents will wander by and mutter something strange. And my mom will say, well, you let me know if I, if I could be any help. So I'm trying to come up with things they can let her do, clear the table. I don't know if rinsing the dishes is something they do because where she lives, they bring all the food over from the assisted living side kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I don't, I'm not there for meals that often, so I don't know, but I'm trying to find these nurturing, you know, and I hate to use the term housewife, but that's what my mom was most of the time. Um, Ways that, you know, ways she can keep that, that role where she's at, because I've read that even in a care facility, they need, they, they need like activities like chores to keep for the exact same reason to give them purpose. And that's one of, you know, my beefs, if you will, uh, with the, you know, the assisted living situations uh, is that everything is done for the residents. And while some residents residents really need that, many still want to be able to contribute to the community. And so that's a challenge. It's a good, I think it's a good challenge that (laughs) for, for um, these communities to try and, um, find some meaningful activities for their residents. Maybe, I, I wonder if your mom could also help serve, you know, uh, the food. That's a possibility. Yeah. I mean, her her memory span is so short. She might be able to do her table of four, which I would think would include her. Mm-hmm. I probably need to go and, and have a meal so I can observe again. It's Like I said, it's been a while how they do it so I can make an informed suggestion. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, I was kind of smirking because you said even in the assisted living, everything's done for them. And there's one gal in the assisted living part of the residence where mom lives. Man, that gal does everything. She's like in charge of all kinds of stuff. And I see her because I'll take mom on that side for a walk. And sometimes I'll go over and talk to the executive director or whatever. And you know, we just, we just wander over that way. And I see that woman all the time and she's a little bit bossy too. (laughs) (laughs) She wants to make sure everybody's following the rules, which would be my mom if my mom's memory was better. So I'm, you know, I'm looking for ways to give her a little bit more purpose, Mm -hmm. you know, even if it's just for two or three minutes, you know, if it's two or three minutes twice a day, that's more than she's getting now. So absolutely, and sometimes you know, I there's this really sweet story. One of uh, the caregivers in my, one of my support groups, she recently moved her husband into a board and care, and he's still quite social, and he does have this nurturing side. And so he actually took one of the more impaired residents under his wing, and. Every day he wheels her about in her wheelchair and they go out and um, into the uh, backyard and watch the birds and, you know, he'll bring her back in and talk to her. So, I, yeah, that, that sense of caring for somebody else or something else really matters. And then I've... My husband is friends with a gentleman whose mother-in-law just recently moved in to the same residence. So I'm, and I think I need to deal with that gal a little bit more to see where she's at and see if maybe my mom can do things with her. I mean, my mom's skills are getting pretty compromised. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I actually made a suggestion to the caregiver that's in charge of the showers because she told me mom ran away from her. Mm. And I did not ask for more details because I did not want to know what state of dress mom was in. (laughs) Not my idea of, that was definitely the TMI I didn't want to know. And I learned from somebody in my support group, this one gal had a problem, you know, it's like showers seem to be a problem all the time. And this one particular gal stumbled on the idea. She would go into the restroom or the bathroom, lay out the towels, the washcloth and all of the, you know, the shampoo and everything and turn the water on, get her mom up. And as her mom used the toilet and then the water's running and everything's there. So it triggered that, Oh, shower time. Mm -hmm. And it worked great. So I suggested that to her to, you know, do it, go in and get it all ready before she gets mom up and see if that helps. I don't know that she's going to try it, but I, I can only offer suggestions that I learned. So, yeah, you know, that's a good, that's a very good strategy. So um, I, we're going off on a little tangent here, but I'm going to continue because you talked about um, activities and uh, and, and your mom's skills in doing activities. And so I want to mention that any activity can really be adapted to our loved one's skill level. Um, it's, we don't ordinarily think about it that way. Or, you know, I think a mistake that many caregivers make is that when someone can't do an activity successfully, by successfully, I mean up to our standards, up to the normal world standards, if you will, um, we take it away. And, well, you know, dad can't do that anymore. So, you know, I'm going to do all the cooking or whatever it is. Um, so I'll, I'll give you an example of adapting activity. This is what I did with, the, with my sweetie. So um, when, uh, before he had disease, we would always share kitchen duties I hate cleaning. Oh, my God. Love cooking. Hate the cleaning part. And he loved the cleaning part. So oh, that sounds like my household. Great partnership. But as he, his disease progressed, that partnership, of course, changed. And so one of the tasks that uh, he used to do was to unload the dishwasher. And so... In the beginning, he, he would unload the dishwasher and things would end up in maybe not the right place. And then that's really just sort of a caregiver has to reframe, like, so what? All right, so the, you know, forks end up in the spoon section or the bowls don't end up in, you know, so what? And I think that's actually a great mantra for a caregiver is, don't, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. It's like, so what? You know, so what if uh, mom's pants don't match her bus? You know, pick your battles. It'll save a lot of stress. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so in the beginning, um, my sweetie would put things in the wrong place. So what? And then it, he got a little confused, more confused. And so I would say... Um, I would uh, hand him, I would start picking up like the picking out all the bowls and then all the plates because once he figured out where something went, he would continue to put the same shaped object 
in the same place, right? So he could, that made him feel like he could still do it. And then when his, he got even more confused, we made it a game. And of course, you know, of course I could have done this like in five minutes, right? But I wanted to keep him engaged and make him feel like he was helping. So then I made it a game. I said, would you hand me all the plates? And again, he could do that. And eventually, he didn't recognize what different things were. And so I just said, hand me the stuff from the dishwasher. And so he would do it randomly. And I could, yeah, I took, a, you know, took a little more organization on my part. So he was able to do that task to almost the very end because I continually simplified it for him. That makes sense. Cause like my mom's at the stage where if I said, hand me the plates, I'm not sure she knows, like, I'm not sure that she has the connection to the word plate and what a plate yeah. looks like. And her visual processing is just shot. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. Now that I know that for a hundred percent, it's interesting to observe it because she'll, she'll say something really strange and I stop and think about like, okay, what is it she's actually seen? And I think when we spoke on the phone, I told you that she, the shadows flip her out. She just Mm -hmm. like tries to step around them. And we were coming down the stairs from the dentist office and there was a like literally a round shadow on one of the steps. And it was like right where you're going to put your foot. And I saw it. And then I felt her hesitate behind me. That's the one thing that's really weird. She will not walk next to me. Mm. She will walk behind me like many paces. And if I get too far ahead, then she trots to catch up and she'll say something. And so I try to like get her to walk next to me because, you know, I don't want her walking behind me. It's a little hard to observe what's going on. But this shadow on the stair, like really concerned her because to her it looked like a hole right trying to figure out how to step around it and not fall down the stairs but fortunately because I've experienced the whole shadow incident with her I knew as soon as I walked past it I'm like oh wait that's a hole so I turned around and I said that's and I touched it I said that's just a shadow from the lights I said just just go over this way and I'm always using hand cues pretty broad hand cues Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I look like I'm directed traffic all the time (laughs) and so she moved to the side of the step and and walked around but man she she looked that's that hole that shadow hole just like like it was going to swallow her up and it really was only about six inches in diameter it was funny I mean it was it's easier to look at it and go oh yeah that's kind of hysterical that she sees them that way but there's times when it's like could you just walk, look up, stop watching your feet, and then you won't see all these shadows and we'll be able to get places quicker. Well, you know, so you bring up two things that I think it's important for caregivers to know. One is um, most probably the reason that your mom follows you as opposed to walking beside you and the fact that why she looks at her feet is that as the disease progresses, the person's peripheral vision decreases. 
so that it's almost like right in front of their eyes. They only see what's directly in front of them. So when you're walking to her side, she's insecure and anxious because she can't see you. That makes sense. I have weird vision, which as a photographer, I don't always tell people because <laughs> it's like, oh, a photographer with weird vision. I only have peripheral vision on one side at a time because I have lazy eye yeah. and my brain thinks I see double. So it only accepts the input from one eye at a time. Interesting. So that whole visual processing thing, that's not a warning sign for me because my visual processing is weird <laughs> anyway. I mean, if it gets worse, that would be a warning sign, but yeah. you know. I, I don't have depth perception and I only have peripheral vision on one side. So I can, I can understand that. That makes a lot more sense. I'd forgotten that that was the case. Cause man, that drives me bonkers. Cause if she's behind me, I feel like I almost have to use my phone to watch her so that she doesn't fall. And thankfully she's only had one. Mm-hmm. Um, I had her and her friend, the, her friend insisted on coming with mm-hmm. us. And sometimes that was actually better. This is the friend who's gotten really quite agitated and paranoid. Six months ago, she wasn't like that. So we'd go out, the three of us would go out, we'd take a drive, we'd go up in the hills. One time we went to McDonald's to the play area to watch kids play because they're both moms and grandmas, but we missed, we were there too early. So we left and I'm trying to watch both old ladies in the parking lot and my mom stepped off the curb and then tripped over the little parking whatever they call that bump. And that was kind of scary because, you know, this nice kind gentleman rushed over to help me pick her up and I didn't want to pick her up right away. So I wanted to make sure she wasn't broken, but right. he didn't understand that. So he was trying to be helpful. Yeah. And what was interesting is in three minutes, she totally forgot. Right. Her hand, she didn't tear her clothes, no broken skin. Mm-hmm. I did let the staff know that she had, taken a tumble. So if there were bruises or she complained about something that they would have a clue, mm-hmm. but that's the only time that we've had a fall incident. And it was mostly because she tripped. Yeah. So I really, since then, I really, really hate having her walk by me. Yeah. So the other thing you bring up with the shadows is that is very common for people with dementia to mistake shadows for um, holes. And that's something that Caregivers can actually use to their advantage for those of you who loved one may be at risk for wandering is to uh, put a a dark rug or something in front of the door and the person, and this is, you know, in the mid, mid stages may perceive that as a hole and not step over it. That's tricky. I'd heard about putting curtains over the door. That too, hiding the door, yes. Yeah, well, they probably won't climb through a window to get out, although there have been some residents where mom lives that have attempted that. <laughs> so, But there's not curtains on them. So chances are they're not going to climb through a window to go outside. So if they see curtains, my the theory I've been told is that they think it's a window and they don't climb out the window. That's a good idea. Good idea. So you put a dark rug in front of the door and curtains over the door maybe you can get a good night's sleep because I think there's a couple people in my support group that need to hear that yeah. so I'll try to remember it's only a couple weeks so I think I, I can remember two weeks if that comes up again so I want to go back very quickly to the fifth goal of caregiving and so the fifth goal is to reduce suffering that makes sense we, 
so we can't cure the disease, but we can really improve our loved one's quality of life. And part of what, you know, Alzheimer's and other dementias are definitely not fun. And, you know, it's a very depressing negative experience, as, you know, we can only imagine. Um, and so when our loved one is confused and agitated, you know, it's not a pleasant feeling. So the more that we can, going back to point number three, get, get them contented and involved in something, being with them in the moment, um, the less they're suffering psychologically and emotionally in the sense. Maybe suffering is too strong a word, but. Um, I think that's one of caregivers' concerns. It's like, my mom makes comments all the time that her brain doesn't work so great anymore. It's not an unusual style of comment for her, but sometimes I wonder, I'm like, is she really aware of what's going on? Or, you know, I mean, I don't, it's hard to know, but it's, I know that's one concern a lot of caregivers I've talked to. They're afraid that their loved one is locked inside this dying brain and they know what's going on. And I, I can't imagine that they do, but that one's hard. Yeah. I, I think a person may have moments of awareness. Of course, it just totally depends on where they are in the disease. I think many people who are in the early stages still have a lot of awareness and insight into their condition. Um, but, you know, the blessing and the curse of Alzheimer's and dementia is that as the disease progresses, the person generally forgets they have a disease or they lose the awareness that there's something wrong. And unfortunately the caregivers don't forget and they're fully aware. No. And, and, it's, and when that, you know, when, when the person loses that awareness, in a sense they actually become more content and happy because they're no longer struggling. Yeah. Because I didn't see them, you know, I saw my mom a couple times a month prior to my dad passing away. I mean, I knew what was going on, but I didn't have the day to day. So I don't, I don't have the experience of knowing when she kind of went from knowing she had a problem because they never admitted. I mean, there was never a family conversation that, Oh, Hey mom definitely has Alzheimer's. We've, she's been diagnosed with it and you know, we need to make some plans. I mean, there was none of that. My dad made good plans. They had a trust he had investments, so we, you know, between her social security, renting out her house, and money that the financial planner deposits in her bank account every month, she's got plenty of money. For if it's going to be ten years, even if it's twenty, God forbid, she she's got plenty of money. So that planning happened, but I don't think my dad. I know he never searched out any of the stuff that I've searched out which was frustrating because I, I found a, a really good adult day program for her relatively close to their house you had to drive through downtown, their hometown, downtown and past a couple of schools. And so at, in the morning, it might've been a little bit more traffic challenge than he wanted to deal with. He wouldn't even consider it. And it was like, you need time away from her. She needs time away from you. 
And she needs to be around other people like her just so she can, she just needs a change of pace. He would not go. He would not go talk to them with me. Nothing it was so frustrating. Mm-hmm. And I've never understood that. And obviously I never will since he's gone, but I, I keep trying to find ways to connect with her, give her more joy, you know, plan for further down the road when she takes another dip, which hopefully is not for another couple of years because <laughs> she stabilized pretty well. But I've, like I said, I've never been aware of when she went from knowing she had an issue early on. Oh, she was really good at denying it. Denial, duck, bob, and weave, just everything she could to distract. Because my grandmother also, she, well, she had brain damage from an aneurysm that leaked. And I've gotten two different medical opinions as to whether or not she had undiagnosed Alzheimer's. So, but she progressed as if she did. So my assumption is she did, although, you know, my MD has not come in the mail yet. (laughs) Um, And my maternal great-grandmother also had no memories at the end of her life. So there was a lot of reasons for mom to be in denial. And I tell people all the time, that is the absolute worst thing you can do. If you know you have a problem, you need to tell people so they don't think you're going crazy and you can make plans. Absolutely. Absolutely. Planning is, and then learning more, everything you can. Cause I, I've told people and you might cringe when you hear this. I didn't even know about the Alzheimer's association until the summer of 2017. I Googled support groups because going to the grief support group through hospice for my dad was only, it was like a fourth of the problem that I was trying to deal with. I could deal with losing him but having to deal with that and taking care of my mom was like too much. And that's when I found my support group for you guys. So, yeah. And I was like, Oh my gosh, there's all this information out here that I've not ever been aware of. And then starting the podcast, I've learned way more than I ever thought I wanted to know. And so I I would say that that there's a couple of other strategies that you just mentioned there. Uh, I mean, the disease is so overwhelming, and it can be such a long journey that you are going to need support. Um, mm-hmm. with, and it's not just emotional support. I mean, but we do need that. And, and a, a support group, whether it's through the Alzheimer's Association or through some other agency, is extremely important, as I'm sure you know, not only mm-hmm. learning from other caregivers who've been there and done that, but having a safe place to vent with other people who really understand. Because you can talk to your friends or other family members, but unless you're really there living it, going through it with your loved one, people don't really, other people really don't understand. This is true. And the second thing you mentioned is, Education, education, education. Uh, the skills that you need as a caregiver, just it doesn't really come naturally. I mean, you mentioned that it's, it's sort of, it, you said that some people have mentioned it's sort of like raising a child, except it's not. No, I, I don't see the correlation. A lot of the you know, techniques, you know, the reassurance, the validation, you know, kind of learning how to avoid triggers can be similar, but it's, you know, the skills 
for caring for uh, an adult with dementia don't come naturally to people. And so there's, you know, the, the Alzheimer's Association offers so many education classes online and in person that um, in addition to going to support group, caregivers really need to educate themselves. There's some wonderful books out there. Um, and that will really not only improve how you approach your loved one, but your loved one's quality of life. If, you know, um, I, I have many caregivers who are starting out in the journey and they're talking about how they, you know, they're trying to explain things to their loved one or they're trying to correct them. And it's, it just, it makes everyone frustrated and escalates the situation. And so getting some basic education on how to approach your loved one and communicate with them as disease progression is paramount to your sanity. Yeah, I've learned that. And one of the things I, the first month I was in the support group, I felt helped. The second month, I had a little bite of information that I shared, so I helped somebody else. And that's what I really like about the support group is it's not just the facilitator saying, oh, well, here's how to handle that situation. Because, of course, with Alzheimer's and everybody's different and everybody's brains are different, you know, what works for me may not work for the next person in our group, but we all share and we all try to help each other. We have a great group. So I have never been to any, well, no, I've, I have not been to a different group since I found that one. Many years ago, there was a speaker, you probably know her, Laura Wyman, at the assisted living facility that is literally down the hill from my house and they have a memory care and unfortunately, they're not as nice as the place my mom is in. So mom is not a mile away from me. She's like 10 miles away, which is still fine. And so I went to that support group to listen to her. And I keep threatening to go. It's a different night than my group. I keep threatening to go and, and check them out just for, just for drill. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> Linda's always telling us we should always go to other support groups and check them out to make sure that we're in the right one and nobody's done that that I'm aware of. <laughs> Everybody loves her. Right. So, and it's, I've only missed once since November of 2017 and that's because I was sick yeah. and I've almost went anyway, but I'm like, nah, I, I don't want to risk anybody else becoming, getting a cold or whatever. So, you know, but it, they're definitely really helpful. And I don't, I'm sure I'm assuming the facilitators at other Alzheimer's Association support groups. Linda's always got three pounds of paperwork on other support groups, other classes, and every possible thing you could want. You could spend your entire life learning how to deal with this disease. Right, right. And so that's that's how I found out about Savvy Caregivers. And there's been some other things I've attended that I've learned through the support group. And they've all been helpful. Yeah. Um, it's harder because I feel like because mom was already so far down the road of Alzheimer's before my dad passed away, I feel like I'm playing catch up all the time and learning about how the disease is affecting her so I can learn how to take care of her better. It's just like the original purpose of the podcast for year one, and I'm now into year two, was to share what I had learned on the journey already with my mom. Well, that kind of got thrown out the window pretty quick. (laughs) And I'm just, 
I'm like the conduit for sharing information as far and wide as I can. And I have learned so much. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. And the whole reason for a podcast is because you can listen to it while you're doing the 500 other things you're supposed to be doing. You know, there's days I swear I'm going to bring my earbuds and have one in. And so I can listen to my mom ask me the same question 15 times, but I can listen to something. (laughs) I have not pulled a trigger yet. Yeah, but it's getting there. Yeah. So speaking of the gazillion things that a caregiver has to do, the other piece that's really important is besides the emotional support is to get that actual physical hands-on support. Because I don't care how you know healthy or young you are, you're going to need respite, meaning a break from caregiving, because uh, it's this is a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, it's a really long marathon. I'm in the ultra marathon group. (laughs) Um, And so whether it's family or friend, a paid caregiver or an assisted living, you are going to need help. And reaching, I'll tell you, no caregiver has reached out for help too soon. That is true. I actually did an entire episode. So this is a, it's so a plug for a previous episode all on respite care, why it's important and how to get it. And it was through um, the office of office of aging. It was a gal in New York, that office of aging. So I'm not quite getting the name right, but close enough. So if you haven't heard that one, people should go back and listen to it. Cause it was, she offered a lot of really good suggestions that were not just pay for it. Cause that's not always easy. And you know, it, it was, it kind of cemented the fact that my dad really should have done that. Cause my dad was critic, you know, he had chronic illness, he had diabetes and heart problems. And my mom's brain didn't work and the re- and his body didn't work. Mm-hmm. So between the two of them, they were like one person, but <laughs> he tried really, and it, and it's probably generational, but he, he tried to do it all himself. And I, I'm sure it shortened his lifespan. Yeah. He did not take good care of himself. So yeah, that didn't help, but he would get short with her and snap at her. And I mean, he, he didn't have a lot of patience as it was. And I swear she knows how to like poke that button and just set you right off. Boom. Off you go. She gets that instantaneous irritated button really well. And they'd been married when he died. They'd been married just over 50. I mean, they had just hit 55 years. Yeah. So of course they knew how to push each other's buttons. So I want to make a plug for our services that if you, if you're looking for respite or ways to afford respite to call the Alzheimer's association and we can connect you, we can do a, what we call a care console, a little care planning uh, one-on-one or by phone. And there is help out there. And I encourage all caregivers to reach out and to Find a source of regular respite. It's not just the, you know, you may have friends or family say, oh, you know, um, I can come by when, you know, I get off uh, uh, when I'm on vacation next week. Or, um, you know, or they'll say, well, let me know what you need. And then the caregiver never follows up. Uh, But, you know, there's, having a regular form of respite meeting like so when I was caregiving there were two things I could never miss my caregiver support group 
and my dance class. And those two things helped me get through the journey. And no matter what happened, I made sure there was always someone to cover those two times. And so every week I could depend on that. And, and actually, and if you ask someone to do something on a regular basis, they can schedule their life around it. And you can schedule your life better. Well, it's also kind of like a lifeline. You know, okay, on this day, I'm going to go to my dance class. And this day of the month, I'm going to the support group. So you have like a little beacon of hope might be not quite the right word, but that's the biggest problem with Alzheimer's is that it's so hopeless. And, you know, as we started earlier, they just get worse and worse and you take on more and more and it's just, it's like a snowball rolling downhill. It just, you need those little beacons of happiness, hope, whatever you want to call it, you know, just to keep you from losing your mind. Which is right. And you'll be happy to know at the end of every podcast episode, I put in the, the 24 seven helpline number. Um, It's just part of the end of the episode because, you know, I advocate find a support group, you can listen to all of the wonderful people that come on my show. And then the Alzheimer's Association has this helpline. So there's always somebody, there's always an, there's always somebody to listen to you or some advice you can listen to. And I just, I, one of these days I'm going to memorize it. It's on a post-it note <laughs> on the computer right now. <laughs> one of these I, days. I think I know it. <laughs> I can quiz you. <laughs> It's not that hard. And I think if I, if I had to, I probably could pull it out of memory, but because I've heard it enough times this week. How about I, editing. How about I say it? Oh, good. Go okay, ahead. So the Alzheimer's Association's 24-7 helpline is 800-272-3900. That is correct. <laughs> and so we talked, so we talked about expectation or not expectations but setting boundaries, boundaries and goals for caregiving and then well we got we touched a little bit on self-care <laughs> setting the goals I like the five points that you made that really re, that helps me so it's got to help other people so maybe that's a good place to end beautiful and you have a fantastic weekend. I really appreciate you coming on. I know you guys are super busy over there. One of these days, I'll 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 come in the office and meet everybody. Okay, wonderful. It's a pleasure speaking to you. You too. Thanks so much, and you have a good weekend. Okay, take care. Mm-hmm, bye bye. Thanks for tuning in. I want to remind you: if you need help right this minute, you have a question you need answered right now, you can contact the Alzheimer's Association 24-7 hotline. Their phone number is 1-800-272-3900. For tuning in to Fading Memories, and as always, I'll be in your ears again next Tuesday. Coming up in just a sec is a promo from another podcast that you might find helpful. It's called Zenity, and it's about a gentleman who's been through all types of mental health struggles and how he managed to come out the other side. And it's a way for you to find ways that you can do better with your mental state. And I know caregivers need that. So I hope you enjoy. And if you like it, give it a listen. 
Do you or someone you know struggle through life with anxiety-related mental disorders? Ever get that feeling that you are one of the few? I'm here to tell you that you are not alone. Take a journey with me as I talk about key points in my past and how they may have led to me being diagnosed with anxiety and panic disorder. After which, we will talk about different ways to tone down the anxiety and maybe even beat it together on anxiety. The easiest way to remember the name is by thinking about how one searches for a state of zen in the midst of the anxieties of life. My name is Gerald, and I'm the host of Anxiety. Anxiety.